Howdy and welcome to Fire and Barley. We've got a very special episode today. We are calling Communing with the Spirits, a hopefully recurring segment that aims to educate folks about your favorite spirits in interesting ways. We'll cover everything from their production to their history to practical applications and everything in between. Each one features Gary Picard, a certified spirits educator currently working in the industry. Besides being one of less than 25 people globally to hold the title of CSE from the Society of Wine Educators, Gary is also an executive bourbon steward from the Stave and Thief Society and holds a level three certification in wine from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. He currently works in New Jersey as a market manager for Brown Foreman's Emerging Brands Portfolio and is a judge for several international wine and spirits publications and competitions. Gary is the perfect person to make these subjects fun, and we're both excited to bring them to you. A word of note, all information and opinions expressed by Gary are solely his own and do not represent him speaking in an official capacity or on behalf of Brown Foreman or any other entity. We hope you enjoy. Hey, Gary, how are you? Good to have you on. Doing well, Russ. Thanks for having me. How, how's things? Yeah, very good. Very good. Just enjoying the week. Happy summers here. And you just got back from Scotland, right? Yes. Yes. It's uh, Even though I'm not Scottish, it's it's good to be back home in the, uh, the, the cradle of whiskey production there. Fantastic time. I was able to get to Glasgow and then finally get over to Isla for the first time, which was fantastic. Whiskey pilgrimage, and then ended up a trip in Edinburgh, which is which is a fantastic city. Well, that's great. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it during during today's chat. So we're excited to have you on to talk about whiskey to, to help educate our listeners on the differences between different types of whiskey. Kind of get into a little bit of how it's made, and then even answer some questions at the end. So it's it's really exciting. I think you know our goal today for everyone listening is just to try to keep this as introductory as possible. So I know you've offered to go through and, you know, do separate episodes on different aspects if there's interest of bourbon or rye or things like that, because obviously I know you, with your experience, you can talk for quite some time, but we're excited today to to talk about whiskey. Yeah, I think uh, having a really uh, base 101 is fantastic for a category that is as complex and as vast as this. So let's get to it. This is, this is exciting. Perfect. Well, could you start Gary, by just defining for us what makes it a whiskey, I know we've heard, we're going to get into some nuances. We'll talk about like whiskey with an E versus whiskey with a with just a Y, and we'll get into the different categories. But I think, you know, we, we talked a little bit about standards of identity and preparing for this. So can we, can you kind of talk to us about what makes a whiskey a whiskey? Sure, sure. I, I think the, the first thing that we have to start with is knowing that whiskey is is hundreds of years old and is coming from different parts of the world. The first documented whiskey making was uh, between Scotland and Ireland. First time that you're seeing any proof of anything is probably around 15th century in Ireland. And then you're starting to see near the end of that century records of people buying uh, barley to make whiskey in Scotland. But uh, in terms of what constitutes a whiskey, it really goes by the different rules of certain countries. But the one thing that is kind of a constant is that whiskey is essentially a alcoholic distilled spirit made from grain. That is the ba- most basic definition I could possibly give for it. There are several uh, uh, production me- methodologies that might vary. There are several different ways you can barrel and ferment and things like that. But if you're not, you know, fermenting grain and then distilling it, 
it's very hard to <laughs> call that a whiskey in any part of the uh, of the world. The country's aspect is interesting. So there are differences between European, American, and, and others. Is it region? Is it country? How do they break down? Yeah, I mean, it, it <laughs> like anything else in the world, it's probably all broken down to how the governments can get taxes out of people producing things. And that's really what it kind of comes down to. But then there's going to be nuances in terms of, you know, uh, taste profiles and what uh, certain sections of the populace like. You're not going to make a whiskey that you can't sell. A, a really good example of that, jumping ahead of the gun here, but when the Japanese started to make whiskey uh, around the turn of the uh, you know, around 1900, they kind of base their model off the Scottish model. And some Scottish whiskey tends to be, you know, much larger, peaty, smoky kind of kind of flavors. The Japanese public just did not like that at all. And so they had to go back to square one, still use the same methodologies, but think about the Japanese palate and what their clientele would kind of want. They came up with something that might be, it was a little bit lighter for, you know, uh, more tropical type weather, uh, something that was more fruit forward. And they kind of did away with a lot of that peat production and smoke. Not saying that you can't have that over there, but that was definitely back at that time what the public really wants. So it sounds like that process of distillation is something that's really a constant and key across all the whiskeys that are being made. What does that mean? I mean, I know I've heard that word. I think I have some knowledge of it, but what is what is the distillation process? Sure. You know, uh, it's we're going to be getting into chemistry and biochemistry and geography, talking about uh, whiskey production. It's, it's a multifaceted category. And we kind of draw a little bit of knowledge from everywhere to make the best whiskey that uh, everybody can around the world. So distillation. It's essentially, you know, fractional distillation. You're taking something and you're distilling the essence of the ethanol, ethyl alcohol, and you're essentially taking elements out and concentrating that alcohol to a higher degree. Uh, you're doing that by essentially cooking something that has alcohol in it, which might be, you know, it's, it's, there's going to be flavor elements in there. There's going to be water elements in there. There's going to be other elements that are happening esters, fatty acids, uh, things like that, that that promote flavor. You cook that essentially to a certain boiling point that's between the boiling point of alcohol, which is around 173 degrees Fahrenheit, and of water, which is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. You cook within that little magic range, and then you know, you're able to take that alcohol outside of that mix that you have, remain and and uh, the water just remains from there. And through that fractional distillation, we're able to get the alcohol out of there al along with a lot of those congeners that are promoting flavor. And uh, you have your what's called new make spirit at the end of that. And there's different ways to uh, distill as well. Uh, you can do batch distillation. That's usually used with different sets of pot stills, which are normally copper pot stills that are heated either in a, a heat bath or blanket or a direct fire heat on, on the still. Those are done in batches, so you'll do your first set of distillation in what's known as a wash still. That will take your your mash, which it will be essentially a beer. Uh, when when you're when you're fermenting grains, you essentially have have beer. You could you could drink. It's probably going to be like a beer that's around five to six percent ABV or alcohol by volume. And then after your first distillation in a wash still, you'll probably have a distillate of about twenty to twenty five percent ABV. And then you're going to go to a set of spirit stills, do the same exact process with the product of the wash still, and then you're going to end up with something that's going to be around probably 60 to 70 percent. Another way, another way to distill would be a more modern process, which would be a continuous distillation, which is happening through an invention called the column still, 
or, or a continuous still or a patent still. Again, different names for different areas of the world. And uh, that is essentially distillation that's, that happens throughout. It's one machine with different sets of plates in it. And then as it's essentially tiny little, if, if I had to like draw a little picture of it, it's tiny little pot stills that are kind of going up this column. And then uh, you can take the alcohol off at any point that you want to, and you could essentially get an alcohol concentration of, of as high as 95, 97%. Uh, you can never have 100% alcohol unless you're in a, like chemistry laboratory type conditions because you know the interaction of oxygen and everything like that. It's impossible to take all the water out unless there's some kind of other chemical means to do so. But I don't know why anybody would really want you know 100%, 200 proof alcohol. That's a, that's a rough weekend, I think. So it sounds like through distillation, that's how you remove enough water to get the liquid to the proper proof you want at the end. Yes. But you mentioned it's refining an existing product. Let's rewind a bit. What goes into that still to be refined? It's about the different ways to kind of approach this. You'll have, for example, just taking two different examples here, the, the, the way that the Scottish do it with, with the Scotch whiskey is to cook the water with the malted barley and, and they make what's called a wort which is just kind of a sweet type of liquid, but they do not distill with the actual whole grains. They will just distill the liquid that comes from cooking off the sugar from this. And what you're left with is what's called draft, which is kind of the husks and the remains of the spent grains that, that are there. And that'll usually go to like cattle feed, that makes extremely happy livestock and cows because there might be a little bit of alcohol content in there. But then, but then you'll have bourbon production in, in America or, or, or rye production or, or American whiskey production, which is normally done in a continuous still. And that is done with just the regular mash, what they call the mash. And that is essentially all of your grains and your water all together. And then after that, you'll have your spent grains and then your, your back set, which could be used for additional batches to, to produce. They won't use the actual bent grains. They'll just use any kind of leftover liquid. They usually, that's, uh, that's that term sour mashing. I might be getting ahead of myself, but when you ever hear sour mashing, what that means is essentially it's kind of like a baker and you have your mother yeast and you use that to create other types of bread for co continuity, exactly, for continuity of flavors. So if you have a good recipe, uh, you can use a certain percent of either back set or, or, um, or the sour mash to, to do the sour mashing process for your next batch. Yeah, no, I think you're going to exactly where we wanted to go, right? We wanted to define what, what whiskey is for everyone. So we know, I think we've covered that. And then the next thing is just to try to tease out the differences. I mean, I've heard, you know, whiskey, I've seen whiskey with an E, EY. I've seen whiskey without a Y. I've heard of scotch. I've heard of bourbon. I've had rye. You know, I've, I've had many of these things. I enjoy many of these things. I don't know really what separates them beyond, oh, this is something I like. And this is, this is a little bit sweeter. This isn't as sweet. Can you talk about, you know, kind of what all these terms mean and just give us like a shared lexicon to go from? Sure. Sure. The actual term whiskey comes from the Gaelic phrase, um, ushkaba or Ushkabetha. So Ushkaba is the Scots Gaelic way of saying it, and Ushkabetha is the way of the Irish Gaelic way of saying hmm. it. The Latinized version of that is Aquavita, and all these terms mean the water of life. So uh, whenever you're saying whiskey, you're essentially saying water of life. That is the anglicized version of the Gaelic term. So now for that pesky E that kind of kicks in. And I think that just comes between the difference between the Scots language and the, and the Irish language. And what I've kind of seen, and, and this is, 
we're kind of post postmodern now and whoever wants to create whiskey, they can they can kind of label it however they really want to within the regulations of their certain countries. But in terms of using the E and, and you or not using the E, it used to be that if the country you were in <laughs> had an E in it, then your whiskey had an E as well. Huh. So America has an E. Yeah. Japan doesn't have an E. Scotland doesn't have an E. Ireland has an E. But now you have, you know, France making whiskey and, and they have an E, so that rule doesn't stand anymore. So what I have heard, though, is that if there are the tradition of Scottish distillers, when they came over to America, and just focusing on American whiskey here for a minute, if the predecessors came over here from Scotland, they were taught to make whiskey in the, in the, the Scottish fashion. And so they learned to use whiskey with a Y and without the E. Sure. Uh, really good examples of that would be uh, Maker's Mark. If you look closely on the bottle, it's American whiskey, but they do not use the E. Um, mm-hmm. Old Forester whiskey. They also come from a Scottish origin and they do not use the E. And, and then again, you have all your other brands out there who are insistent upon this, uh, this E uh, to kind of separate it. So then is it accurate to say that all whiskey that comes from Scotland uses the Y without the E or is that an oversimplification? Yeah, I'm hard pressed to think of anyone that uses an E in Scotland. Um, mm-hmm. and I, again, I don't. They would have to probably wrestle with the uh, Scotch, Scotch whiskey authorities on that. But I think the tradition there is to do it without the E, and because you're right next to Ireland over there, and and the and the largest fight that you can get into in Europe is who created whiskey first, the Scotch or the Irish. You know, I, I think there was a lot of cross pollination going on back then, and uh, we'll never really have a very clear and defined answer. But uh, it really differentiates one from the other, aside from the actual methodologies of making the actual whiskey. Got it. And then other words, so like scotch, does scotch have a, a meaning that's more complicated than it's made in Scotland or how yeah. is that moniker? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think that you know it, we're, we're getting into the confusion of different types of whiskeys. Uh, this is a saying that I heard down in Kentucky, and it, it goes, all bourbon is whiskey but not all whiskey is bourbon. Sure. So if you think about it in terms of a, an umbrella, whiskey is the grand umbrella under which all other types of whiskey sits. So if you have bourbon, rye, Japanese whiskey, scotch, Irish whiskey, it all falls under this major umbrella of, of just whiskey. You have straight whiskey, you have bottled and bond whiskey. All these things are ways to produce um, a lot of these tend to do with protected geographic indicators or a pro- a protected designations of origin. Uh, when you're starting to deal with that, you're, it has to be from a particular geographic place. You can't make Japanese whiskey when you're not in Japan. You can't make scotch if you're not in Scotland. You can't make Irish whiskey if you're not in Ireland. And contrary to popular opinion, it used to be thought that you could only make bourbon in Kentucky when, as of 1964, there was a resolution passed by U.S. Congress saying that as long as you're within the United States of America, you can make bourbon anywhere within the United States. Hmm. But you'll never find bourbon outside the United States. And if you do, then they have to wrestle with the TTB on that. And the big separating, you said, is, is the process or is it ingredients? Like how do, what separates a rye from a bourbon you yeah. know, when you talk about? So when you're talking about... When you want to make a whiskey, the first thing that you need to do is is ask yourself how you're going to make it, uh, what your final product is going to be like. And the first set of ingredients that you have to decide upon is what's known as either your, in America, known as a mash bill or also uh, more in Europe as a grain bill. It's, it's probably, there's more variation 
in that within America, most distillers say that 70% of the flavor comes from the barrel and then the rest comes from possible distillation processes or your grain bill, your mash bill. I've also heard that a lot of your, more of your flavor is going to come from your choice of grains in America than it will in, say, a place like Scotland or Ireland or Japan because uh, of the different regulations needed to call it that particular geographic origin. For example, bourbon. Uh, and and the reason why I'm saying this is because that your choice of grains is inextricably tied to your choice of barrel, because that's the other thing that mm. most things need. You need to be able to age whiskey for a certain amount of time for certain types of labels. So in America, you can choose uh, to have a certain proportion of certain types of grains, depending on what you want to make. To answer your question about rye, a rye would need to be a majority rye grains. So it would be 51% rye by volume in your mash bill. If you wanted to make bourbon, it would have to be 51% corn. If you wanted to make a wheat whiskey, it would have to be 51% wheat, and so on and so forth. In, uh, in Scotland, you don't have that type of leeway. If you want to make a single malt scotch, it has to be 100% malted barley. But the, but the kicker here is... The reason why you're able to have all this variation in America is because you don't really have a choice in what type of barrel you're aging in. It has to be a new charred American oak barrel. That's the law. Uh, you'll never find a bourbon aged in anything other than that. You can finish it, but then you have to have that qualifier of this is a bourbon finished in a port barrel, a sherry barrel, uh, an ice wine barrel, where, where you know, the, the possibilities are really endless at that stage. But in Scotland, you can take your new make and go directly into a sherry barrel if you want to. You can go into uh, whatever type of wine barrel, whatever type of any kind of barrel you, you want. And you're going to get a lot more variation of your flavor from the way that you're aging your whiskey rather than what you can do uh, within your, your grain or mash bill. And what's so? What's the rationale for the U.S. being so restrictive in its its type? Is it just to further the oak industry? Is that big oak <laughs> got in there early? And you know, I don't think you're wrong on that. Um, <laughs> you know, to have a seat at that table or be a fly on the wall would be interesting. But uh, these these rules really didn't kick in until I would I would say probably the 30s or 40s. I mean, the the proclamation about United States product came out in 1964. And something known as the Taft decision came out in 1909. President Taft at the time, he was tasked with, um, you know, defining what whiskey is because there were a lot of products on the market that were, were calling themselves whiskey, but there was nothing codified. So this was this is 10, 12 years after the Bottle and Bond Act. So there were things that could be co considered Bottle and Bond. That was 1897. But Taft said, and that was the time where, where it was decided that, you know, for, for whiskey in, in the United States, at least, that it needed to be distilled spirit made from grain. So you were probably getting all kinds of like brandy type products in there, fruit type distillates that, that ended after the Taft decision. Yeah. And that, that said that that laid down the rules for what make a true whiskey a true whiskey, right? The, the bottle and bond Taft. Yeah, par partly. I mean, it's it's been a it's been a slow go. They keep adding things, uh, and I think that so it's the long way around to your question. I think that decision to to not be able to reuse casks happened sometime between the Taft decision and and the the, the Congress proclamation of sixty four. Uh, so I'd say probably sometime in the thirties or forties, the forestry department got involved and said, "Hey, you know, it'd be really nice," <laughs> you know, uh, and then they kind of passed that that through. But uh, again, uh, you, you have to you know 
talk about you can't talk about the 30s and 40s uh, without talking about prohibition in America and its effect on on uh, whiskey production or, or lack thereof. So uh, there are a lot of things at play. Government and taxes have been hand in hand with the production process of all types of distilled spirits since since the beginning of time. Can you talk a little bit about why that barrel is so important? So we, we've kind of covered the, the steps that are beginning, right? We've got the fermenting, the mash. We talked about the distilling. We've kind of come towards the, towards the, the end of the, the process, well, towards the end of it, depending on <laughs> the aging process is. But why is the barrel significant? Why does it make such a difference to the liquid? Sure. So if anybody has ever had moonshine, they can definitely let me know that it's uh, – they, they would tell me that it's – Quite different than a, a, a nice 25-year <laughs> uh, whiskey. Much different color, much different flavor, much different everything. So, But what, what people were saying about um, aged spirits, and this probably only started in America around like 1810, 1820, was that um, you had whiskey that was, had to get shipped somehow. You had your, your distillers, which were, you know, you had rye distillers in Pennsylvania, you had corn distillers in, in Kentucky and, and that area. And uh, you had major markets, like say something like New Orleans. And, and so how are you going to get your product to be able to sell in bars uh, or, or to, to people for any kind of consumption whatsoever? You, you're going to need to move it somehow. So they started placing it in barrels. And so to move it on these barges down the river, the Mississippi River was a, was a massive way to be able to get product to where it needed to go. And a lot of times, by the time the product got there, it had changed a little bit in flavor and taste, and uh, they realized there's, there's, something, there's something to this. Now, that's not to say that you know, whiskey aging started in America. I, I, don't, I don't think that anyone could really uh, substantiate that. But, uh, I mean, there are records of, of people putting whiskey in casks for, for, I would say, probably early 19th century as, as well, if not earlier in Europe. So, you know, before bourbon barrels, you would use whatever kind of barrels you can kind of get your hands on. Uh, you would get, you know, mostly wine barrels. You get like Madeira, Port, Claret, things like that, Bordeaux. Uh, but you use what you can get. You can, you can char the inside. You can scrape what you need to scrape off. Yeah. There's a rumor that... Uh, the, the scotch used to use fish barrels, herring barrels. I don't know if there's anything okay. to this rumor because there's a lot of fishing around Scotland. So I don't know why you need to import any type of fish there. But this is a tale that kind of won't die. So what he did was he bought a cask from a well-known distillery. And then he finished it in a, a herring barrel. <laughs> and, he call, okay. and he called it fishkey. And if you go online and kind of see the, some of the reactions and tasting notes... It's def- it was definitely an amusing project. I don't know if that, there's any type of historical relevance to, to these claims, but it's something that I guess had to be done. But he did end up with a fish-flavored whiskey, so that's that's something. I don't know what to say about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, too, because reading through it, it, it people didn't say – the fish flavor didn't come through as much, but uh, okay. but the but the salt flavor certainly did. So I guess it was like some kind of salted herring. I don't know. Yeah, so that barrel, that's really going to impart a lot of the flavors and a lot of the color. Does it impact texture too? Like, was it a smoother based on type of wood or length of age? How does that happen? I'd say the main elements that, that are going to come out of uh, aging in a barrel, uh, you're going to get coloration. You're going to get the color of that oak. You're, you're going to get a change in color from, from that water white that your new make spirit, your white dog is. 
uh, over to sometimes a nice uh, golden or an amber, depending on how long you age it or what type of barrel it is. Wine barrels, you can almost have a kind of a red hue to it. You're going to get oxidation that happens there as well because you're you're putting like anything else you're you're putting something out to to elements and so oxygen is going to be able to get into that barrel and it's going to change the components and the flavor profile of what that is. Now for wine we all know that oxidation is a bad thing. You have a bottle of, you know, anything and you put it in the fridge for 2-3 weeks and you drink it and that is not the same wine you opened 2-3 weeks yeah. ago. But um, some of those um, oxidative flavors can actually enhance the flavor of, of whiskey, and we actually rely on it to be able to do that, to change it. Flavoring happens within the cask. You're going to get some of those oak flavors. Uh, a lot of these chemical compounds, eugenol, which is kind of a, a clove type of flavor, vanillin, which is more of a vanilla type flavor, and, and there's all different types of, of like, like hundreds, if not thousands of different flavor compounds that are found within oak that can affect the flavor of the whiskey. So you definitely want to get those integrated as well. You're going to get concentration. Everything's going to concentrate. Uh, water is going to evaporate normally, depending on the humidity and the temperature of where you're storing your barrels. But everything will kind of concentrate within that barrel, and you're going to get usually what's called the angel share. Uh, you can lose anywhere between 1% to up to 11 to 12% in more tropical climates of, of volume in that barrel per year. Quite a thing to get that concentration of, of, of flavors. Uh, and those greedy angels will take uh, whatever they want to take and you can't stop them. The other two things that happen, uh, th that's the evaporation that I'm talking about there. And then extraction, you kind of like you're leaching out these flavors from, from the barrel. Knowing the angels share then does it actually get like higher in proof the older it ages? Like, is it getting more alcohol concentrated? If you're in a drier and hotter climate, the ABV will actually rise in the barrel because the water will evaporate before the alcohol will. Mostly. You, you can't control what happens inside of a barrel. You can only control what, what happens, you know, your outside atmospheric things. Uh, but for example, you have, say, take a, a climate like Scotland, you know, very rainy, very humid, colder, and you even have some distilleries that are on the coast. Your coastline distilleries, your island distilleries, they will lose alcohol quite rapidly just because there's so much water in the atmosphere, and that will be what will go out in the angel share. If it gets to that point, you cannot sell whiskey in a bottle and call it scotch or bourbon. Usually the, the bar for that is 40% ABV or 80 proof. That's interesting. I never thought of climate and humidity as having such a difference, but the water in the air makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and then it's kind of like its own little like biodome, uh, because whatever's happening in that barrel, and that's why master blenders and and distillery managers they always have to go around and taste what's going on because they just can't get inside that barrel to change anything. Most whiskey regulations are that you can't even add anything after you take it out of the barrel. The only thing that you normally add is uh, is is water that that might be treated in a certain way. Some places you can do caramel coloring. There are some markets where you might be able to do some type of types of flavoring or or, or sugar is added, but like yeah. that's that's getting less and less because people are more concerned with the natural quality of what you're getting out of that barrel. So is it accurate to say the older the whiskey, the better the whiskey, or is that a generalization that doesn't hold up? Nope. I'm I'm a very fast no on that. <laughs> I've had some <laughs> I've had some young whiskey, which is uh which is absolutely lovely. I've had some great new make whiskey that's never even touched a barrel. That's fantastic. As long as you know what you're drinking, know what you're getting into, I think you can't go into drinking moonshine thinking you're drinking a you know 50-year-old whiskey. It's just not going to be the same experience. 
it can be a pleasant one. There's going to be different types of flavor notes that you're going to get out of something younger than you will get out of something older. But that being said, I think the reason why people assume that the older the whiskey, the better the whiskey is just because of the price points on those. And the only reason why those price points are so high is because of rarity. You can make new make right away. You don't have any angel share taking it. You know, you don't have to pay for any type of real estate to be able to age a barrel on. So you're cutting your costs in many, many different ways to be able to just drink something new. Unfortunately, a lot of people like the taste of barrel flavored or barrel aged things. And so uh, we we need lots and lots of space to, to age barrels around the world. Yeah, it feels like at times it gets into almost like an arms race of like who, which distiller can offer the next oldest. Okay, we found an 80 year old one in the next year. We found an 82 year old one and then somebody else will come through. We found an 83 year old one. It just feels like and then you see the numbers, oh, at auction, this one set a new record for the price. And now that, that record's been broken, right. at some point, you know, I do wonder how much of that is just, you know, PR of just wanting to participate in, you know, a, a de facto cold war of age and price. There's there's certainly that. And and again, I, I keep talking about postmodern society, but we're, we're absolutely in that. It's People are, are buying whiskey. They're investing in whiskey. They're talking about whiskey futures as opposed to like gold futures or oil futures. Like it's it's an investment yeah. because you're seeing the, the value of these bottles. So they're going to, you know, buy it, buy it at auction or, or have an in somewhere or, and then they're just going to like put it on their mantle or put it in their basement and not touch it and drink it. I mean, like I'm a, I'm a personal fan of like, if you're going to buy a bottle of whiskey, you should be able to enjoy it and not just have to like, you know, sell it off in another five, 10 years when you can make a few hundred thousand dollars on it who knows and people have said that this this whiskey bubble is going to burst sometime um mm. we're in unprecedented times with this we, we keep breaking you know uh auction price after auction price on what's the most expensive and the oldest and things like that my basic go-to is like if you like it drink it find something that someone doesn't know about that's affordable and that you really like Maybe yeah. maybe tell one or two people about it, but just enjoy that for as for as long as you can, and and hopefully that won't be the next thing that's a that's a fad or an investment. That brings us to to an interesting question, right? Is there a right way to to drink whiskey? So my personal opinion is uh, there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's, right? Like you can, however you like it. I mean, I was at a bar with a friend, and there was somebody who you know, you, you can see they were kind of well to do, and and they were enjoying their time at the bar. And I think they ordered a Macallan 18, which by all means is not a cheap drink, and Coke. And most most people, you know, the, the first reaction, the gut reaction, is to go, "What? Like, what are you? What are you doing? You know, it's spent 18 years in a barrel to get the taste profile for of this, and you're gonna yeah. you're gonna drown it in 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 soda." But at the same time, if that's what he wants to spend his money on and how he enjoys drinking it, then who are you? to say how he should enjoy something, you know? Another friend of mine, he owns a um, independent bottler and he found this, I forget which distillery it was, but he, um, it was like this 30 year old, single cask, beautiful, uh, people were cl- like climbing over themselves to get a bottle of it. And he gave a glass to his, I think 92 year old father and he put a little bit of ginger ale in it. And people online were like, "Yeah, it's like, this this guy's lived ninety two years. Let him enjoy his whiskey, however he wants to. Yeah. He might know something that you don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, you're going to see uh, the more expensive the whiskey, the more people will recoil in terror if you drink anything to it besides drinking it. Yeah. You know, in a in a hefty, 
glass in a in a leather chair in a study <laughs> while your while your uh, yeah. while your stock report comes in on the ticker. And so when you taste, I mean, I, so there's common themes that since we're on the subject of tasting that come up when somebody's had a whiskey, right? Like somebody will tell you, oh, this tastes peaty or this tastes smooth, or they will pick up on uh, just how boozy or how alcohol forward it is. Sure. How, how would you recommend people taste whiskey? What kind of flavors are they looking for? How do the, what role does the tongue play in this? I, I want to get, if somebody's listening to this, what can they do to become a better and quote unquote more sophisticated whiskey taster? It's a really good question because um, you know I'll I'll be doing tastings around and you know going to different crowds and certain people are t- picking up certain nuances and like I don't know like uh, it, it can get it can get a little you know <laughs> not atmospheric but it can it can get a little uh, um, staunch you know people people can be like oh well sure. I, I get you know cooked sultanas and I get you know braised uh, brisket and all this kind of stuff. I can't say that they're wrong because everyone's senses are completely uh, uh, subjective to themselves. So if they're getting something, then good on them. And if they enjoy it, even better. I, I, on the other edge of the coin, though, other side of the coin is people who just like, it tastes like whiskey or it tastes like rum yeah. or it tastes like cognac. Or, and it's like, okay, you're, you're kind of taking the surface. You know what it is. And I think that a lot of these people are kind of afraid of giving what would be a wrong answer. Uh, the, the thing to say, just like there's no wrong way to drink something, there's no wrong way to describe what you're drinking. And I think there are so many social cues that people follow. They don't want to be the first one to say, I taste peaches in this. I taste green apples. I taste cinnamon. I taste butter. I take like, and these are all valid things the, the flavor compounds are in there. Of course, these actual elements are normally not in there. We've distilled everything to the point of basic destruction and then added different types of flavor compounds through different processes. But uh, it doesn't mean that you're not tasting that and those flavor compounds are not there represented somehow. So I, I think the best way to approach it is to have an open mind and to drink slowly. You're never going to get anything out of doing shots. That's just more for enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a time and place for everything within moderation, of course. but it really is, is about taking your time and, and seeing what's in the glass, enjoying something for what it is. We're in a time now where such attention to detail is going into production and recipes are being followed, uh, traditions are being followed. It's a really beautiful thing if you think about it, all the history and geography and chemistry, all the things I said before that kind of go into this. Enjoy what's in your glass. Enjoy what you paid for. Get your, get your money's worth. Great advice. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because I know I've been to a few tastings and I've, I've always wondered what they mean when they give you like the cards that say this whiskey has flavors of apple or flavors of caramel. And you're like, but an apple did not go into the making of this. How does it taste like apple? But you're talking about identifying that layer of shared compounds through process that, oh, this tastes similar to an apple would because it's sharing, you know, certain compounds of flavor. It's our communal human experience. You know, I, the way that I experience a green apple might be uh, a little bit different than the way than you experience a green apple, but we can still kind of get a roundabout agreement as to what green apple tastes like. I'm talking about just biting into a, a, a actual green apple and then kind of talking about, oh, what do we taste there? Well, how do you describe what something tastes? It's 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 kind of beyond words. You know, it's a, it's a it's a whole other 
sensation experience. So uh, to, to share language, is it, it can be a, a bit of an obstacle sometimes. And I think when these tasting notes are, are, are given out, it's, it's either a consortium of different people saying, this is kind of the flavor profiles that I'm picking up from this, or it's a master blender or a master distiller kind of sitting down and saying, this is what really comes out at me. Uh, this is, you know, or they might know the different congeners or different flavor profile, uh, flavor um, active ingredients that are within that, that might be chemically more prevalent than others. And they can kind of base their decisions off of that. It's usually more of a sensory thing, though. I think that sitting down and, and seeing how the whiskey brings out certain types of flavors, then that's that's the way that you kind of get these tasting notes some things are some things are kind of universal. Like I think, like uh, a great example is Jack Daniels. Most people get a very distinct banana taste off of Jack Daniels. I don't think there, a banana has ever walked into Jack Daniels' story, <laughs> but uh, that is something that is a quite universal uh, taste. Uh, bur- yeah. Bourbon, um, you get people saying they taste like vanilla a lot. Mm-hmm. The vanilla is that that vanillin that that's coming from the oak casks, uh, or or there might be some type of conjure that might be within the um, the the new make that's coming off the still, uh, some residual sugar that's coming from your actual uh, ferment. So who knows what it could be? It could be it could be a lot of different things. So with all these rich flavor profiles, is there a way to taste or a, a methodology that that assures you get more of it I, I, when you're yeah, approaching Definitely it. what I said before, take, taking your time. I, I think that uh, you know, giving yourself glassware is important. Make sure your glassware is clean. You know, I would uh, make sure that it is appropriate glassware. I mean, you can use a tumbler. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, if you're tasting an ounce or two of, of liquid in, a, in like a highball glass, that might be hard to kind of get yourself close to the, <laughs> close to what's going on sure. there. You know, certain certain types of wine glasses, uh, certain uh, sherry glasses called copitas are, are great to use. The tiny little stemware. Uh, you don't need to have anything like this, but it's it's beneficial to kind of like have a smaller glass so you can kind of get more intimate with what you're drinking. First thing I would do it would be to look at look at what you're drinking in the glass. The appearance tells a story as well. You know, color, shade, hue. You don't have to need to describe it, but you should definitely see, see what you're drinking. And there's some really brilliant, beautiful colors that can come out of what you're, what you're drinking, uh, and different shades too, from, from a 12 year whiskey to a 15 year whiskey from, uh, something that's, uh, you know, just aged four years to eight years, whatever it is, or an unaged, uh, you can see some really nice, like rainbow colors come through sometimes, uh, the viscosity of it. If you want to swirl it around in your glass, uh, you can kind of see uh, what's known as either the legs or the stems or the tears. Usually, the higher the ABV or or the uh, older or more concentrated the whiskey is, the uh, slower those legs will run down your glass back into the whiskey waiting uh, at the bottom. Turbidity uh, is is the whiskey clear? Can you kind of see through it? I mean, if it's old enough and dark enough, you're going to have a hard time. But like, you should be able to have some kind of uh, opacity to be able to see through it. So from there, the actual tasting, I would smell first. And uh, this is actually this is a part that people tend to uh, do differently, and not a very well known thing. Uh, when you smell your whiskey, you should open your mouth a little bit. Still breathe through your nose, but open open your mouth just enough so there's cross ventilation. The first thing that's going to come off of any type of distilled spirit is going to be ethanol. You're going to get this big hit of alcohol, and what that'll do it it'll actually numb your olfactory senses, and so you won't be able to get as much 
of uh, those flavors. With that cross-ventilation, mm. it kind of calms down the ethanol going directly up your nose, and you kind of pick up more of the nuances that are within the, the aromas. And, and move the glass around, too. Certain flavors go different ways. I mean, some will go up, some will go sideways, and you'll get different concentrations of different types of uh, aroma profiles, depending on which way you're kind of moving within the glass. I wouldn't get too close to the liquid, depending on how pronounced the aromas are. Um, usually with distilled spirits, you'd be able to get them right at the rim of your glass. You might need to bury your nose a little bit. Sometimes you'll get it from across the room, depending on what you like, like an, like an absinthe or something like that. If I open that down the block, sometimes people will be able to smell that. Sure. And then the best part, tasting. I do recommend that people take one taste and discard it. Uh, just kind of swish it around your mouth, uh, coat your tongue, coat your palate, because your body needs to know you're drinking whiskey. Uh, it's it's kind of like a signal to your brain saying, okay, we're 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 drinking alcohol now. So let's get over this initial shock that we're putting this chemical compound into our system. We're going to get past that ethanol shock, and then we're going to get into the actual you know, flavors of of what's hiding behind that or what's mixed into that. And so on your second approach to whatever you're drinking, you're going to pick up a lot more of the nuances of flavor. And, uh, and from there, you can kind of dig in a little bit deeper. Um, I take smaller mouthfuls. Different regions of your palate will pick up different types of flavors, different um, senses, things like that. Uh, concentrate on, you know, uh, how, how viscous the, the, the whiskey is. You know, it'll, it'll coat your palate or, or it's going to go down really, or, it's, or it could be really hot. There could be a lot of alcohol content in it. And then when you're done and you, and you swallow the liquid, the finish how long does it stay on your palate? How long do you experience these senses? Do these flavor profiles change over time? How long do they last? These are all pretty valid questions. Do you want to go back for more? Do you want to run and uh, spit something out? Do you like there's? Uh, do you need water afterwards? It, it can be different in a lot of different ways, and so that's why you know. And and you could have a bottle that you love one day, and you have certain notes on or things like that. And then you come back to it the next day and you could have a completely different experience. It could be the temperature or the humidity of the room ex affecting your experience. What you ate for dinner last night, how you're feeling. Uh, did you exercise that day? There are a lot of things that, that change your actual subjective experience with, 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 with your relationship with what you're, what you're consuming. And I think making it such a personal and unique experience really makes it more powerful and drives home why people enjoy whiskey. Yeah, and, and it's not a stodgy thing. I, wanna, I want people to get past kind of the, um, you know, uh, this, <laughs> it's, it's not, you're not like this person with their nose in the air if you want to write down about what you're drinking and make flavor notes. I think, I think it's, um, it's kind of, it's very interesting and it's a very personalized experience. It, you don't have to be like a sommelier or, or a specialist in any regards. And I think the more that you know about uh, what you're drinking and, and the more that you kind of respect what you're drinking, the more that you kind of learn about yourself and what you like, and you can make better decisions for what you want to buy or purchase or consume in the future. Well, that brings us to kind of where we're finishing here, which is a few questions that our listeners have submitted. All right. Uh, yeah, this is this is new. We, we haven't done this before, so we'll see how it goes. But um, Seth from Mississippi, he wrote in and said, what's the most memorable whiskey or bourbon tasting experience you've had? I'm sure there's a ton and we could do a whole episode of just your experiences, but what's, what's a, <laughs> one of the more memorable ones that kind of sticks out to you? Oh man, it's it's so hard to pick one. I mean, work, working in the industry is one thing and you get access to a lot of different experiences and bottles and things like that. Some of my most dear experiences, 
Um, and, and let me say, this industry, it's, it's a very hard one to crack into if you're not kind of born into it. Uh, there's a lot of people that mm-hmm. kind of want to work in the distilled spirits and wine industry. So I, I, I consider myself very lucky to be able to do so. Most of my good experiences uh, or my most, my most memorable ones happened before I was in the industry. And the kindness of people within the industry reaching out to me, not just as a consumer, but to, as, as a person, seeing you know like where I was on my educational journey with this, like going beyond just like, here, I'm pouring this for you. This is what it tastes like. Get out of my face, you know? Um, yeah. I remember a... Um, it was my first whiskey tasting I'd ever been to. A, a dear friend of mine, uh, actually, his name is uh, uh, Dr. Matt Lura. He throws a festival called The Water of Life. And at the first, very first festival, was before I was working out, and I was bugging him, like, can I, can I help with setup? Can I, can I get chairs for people? You know, I was, I was trying to just like be like a runner for him. Uh, and he's like, you know, just be around and whatever. So they had this, uh, they had this raffle for, for different types of bottles. And, and so I, I, you know, I didn't have any money at the time. And I was like, you know, you can buy as a musician in New York city and no, none of those, <laughs> not, not the most yeah. lucrative career, but, um, I, I spent, you know, a few bucks and I put my name in the raffle and, and they called my ticket and I, I got this bottle of, um, it was a, a new release at the time, uh, called Signet by uh, Glenn Morangy, which is a, a Highland single malt. And uh, it's about a $200 bottle. So I was like really excited back then. I was like, wow. And by all means, not the most expensive bottle in the world, but it's a nice bottle. My friend who has taught me a lot of what I know, his name is Clay Washington. He, he was with me as well. He was doing more working in the industry at that point. And, and it's, it was his favorite bottle. And he was so jealous that I had gotten it. I took that bottle home. And uh, it was such a great experience, such a great memory. And I didn't open that bottle for years. And, and I'd say four or five years later, friends of mine that were at that festival came over to my house and I said, guys, I've got something. And this is after a, a day of eating and drinking and things like yeah. that. And I went into the back of my closet and I took out this bottle. And a lot of people think I'm, I'm crazy for not drinking this amazing bottle right away. But some bottles you want to save for a really nice occasion or for the right occasion. And with the people that were present at that time, and, and by this point, I had established myself in the industry. And, you know, people were asking me the questions that I was asking at that first thing. So I thought it was very much a full circle type thing. And, you know, we, we, we cracked that bottle open and uh, I still have a little bit of it left for whenever certain choice people who were at that first whiskey festival come over, we'll, we'll share a little bit of that bottle. That's a, that's a special, that's a special bottle for me. So it's not about how expensive or how old it is. Uh, That's, that's really one of my more memorable bottles though. Yeah. That's a full circle moment. That's really neat. And, Reminds you of, of how far you've come and all the people that were important in it, for sure. It's all about the journey, not, not the destination. <laughs> Frank from Pennsylvania asked, uh, and he does have, I know Frank, he does have some, some whiskey knowledge. Pretty Okay, I'll try, I'll try to get this right then. <laughs> what did the Scottish previously age whiskey in before ex-bourbon barrels were available? Ah, yes. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I think we touched on this a little bit before and the stories of them using, you know, old fish barrels and, and, fish. and whatever they could use. I think more likely the answer, and again, records were really not kept at this time. One of the distilleries that I, I do work for, they, they do keep ledgers for, for trading and what they get in goods wise and what their, what their, you know, tax records, things like that. I do know that this particular distillery that I work for, um, uh, Glendronic, it's a single malt. They have proof back to, I believe, 1858 that they were using uh, sherry barrels from Jerez, Spain. So uh, I think that's a leading proponent. Any kind of ex-wine, 
uh, because you're going to get those wine flavors within within whiskey. Again, I think that American records kind of go back to uh, around 1810, 1820 about the new American oak barrels. But but in terms of the, the Scottish, I think that X, X wine barrels or whatever you can kind of get your hands on, if there was something unsavory about it, I would imagine they would treat the barrels in some respect to be able to get some of those previous flavors out if they did not want it influencing uh, the, the whiskey at all. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, you, Gary is available on Instagram at Gary Elixirs, right? G-A-R-Y-E-L-I-X-I-R-S. That is the handle. If you please. have more questions for Gary, I'm sure he'd love to talk about it in the DM. Yeah, make yourself known. Uh, and uh, hopefully I can come back on and we can do another episode uh, with uh, what everyone wants to hear about. I, I love to wax poetic about the industry. Yeah, definitely. We will find other, other opportunities. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Russ. Fire and Barley is part of the Sparrow Creative Network and is hosted by me, Russ Martonis. Our theme music is by the well-coiffed Nils Dallaire. And today we'd like to thank Mr. Rogers for being such a positive part of all our childhoods. We'll see you soon.